Amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate the worship team. It's amazing how many Sundays that the songs fit so very well with what the scripture is we're going to focus on and with regard to the message. So thank you very much. Those songs were very, very fitting. And I thank the Lord for your ministry. If you would turn to Romans chapter 8. I had a senior moment this week and so I got the notes out late. So there are a few notes back there if you didn't print up some for yourself. So feel free to grab some notes if you need them. I also did something a little different with the bulletin this week. Actually uh, provided some space for some notes, some notes for the sharing time that you can use uh, each week and some space for writing down things during the message like questions you have or things that stand out to you that seem very fitting for what you're going through that you need to remember this week, uh, as well as just um, applications, practical things that come to mind as the Lord speaks to you through the, the word and through the message. And so I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. You may already do that. You may already have notes that you uh, take along those lines. But I would encourage you to be engaged during the message because uh, for all of us, even when I'm when I'm not preaching, I have to fight to stay awake just like everybody else does because uh, we tend to be so very busy. We sit down for an hour and our bodies just want to go to sleep. And so let me encourage you to be engaged one way or the other um, because... Uh, The reality is, uh, listening to God's word is the most important thing you will do this week. Uh, There's nothing more important than listening to the God who created you and praying that you will receive what he has to say. We've been talking about um, trusting the love of God for us over the last little while, and I've picked certain passages to go through that emphasize the love of God, and so I want to continue doing that. And it's based on 1 John 4.16, which says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And I've thought a lot about uh, what we're going through these days and how important it is to have a right perspective on things. And I have come to the conclusion that, according to the scriptures, there's nothing more important than knowing and believing the love of God for us in Christ. We've talked a lot about the whole a great reset that's going on. And um, the great reset refers to a published agenda among world leaders and corporate leaders where they are trying to move the world toward a stated utopia. And that's not an understatement. If you read what they have to say, it's about a stated goal of a earthly utopia where they rid the world of health issues and Uh, conflict between nations, and all kinds of things. And um, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, has um, been seen as an opportunity to move the world uh, more toward that utopia. And that's why Klaus Schwab, who's ahead of the World Economic Forum, has said, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. And so that is what's happening. And that, for me, helps me understand what's going on in our country and in our world when things seem to be so confusing about why certain decisions are being made and why certain things are being overlooked and not addressed and other things are being addressed. And if you read what they're saying, it makes perfect sense in accord with what they're really pursuing. 
But we know that's not unique. There have been other instances in history where man has sought to build a utopia apart from God and apart from Christ, and it will fail, just like it has in the past. But there is a great reset coming, and that is God's great reset, where he makes everything new, where the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. And that is truly our hope. But we live in a time where there's a lot of talk about uh, the world uniting, one world government type talk. There's a lot of talk about inclusiveness, which means everyone, regardless of what their views are, need to be included. And that includes um, lifestyles that the Bible says are sin. So there's a big push towards saying we need to include everyone, we need to affirm everyone, we need need to embrace everyone. And when it includes those lifestyles that the Bible says God says is wrong, it pits that agenda against Christianity. And I was just reading uh, an article this morning that was just published today online in which they're talking about um, digital... Uh, identity schemes and cybersecurity, and there was a, a phrase in there where they said that what they're trying to do globally in terms of this um, cyber pandemic, you know, because of all the cyber attacks that are happening around the world, uh, they're wanting as a, a global community to address those cyber insecurities, so to speak, and one of the things that they plan on doing is they want to set up digital identity schemes that keep a record of all your online um, information and can provide or restrict citizen access to essential goods and services. That's right there in the article. They will track everything you do online and they will determine whether or not you have access to essential goods and services. All you have to do is read your Bible. Uh, to know that the world's headed in that direction. Who knows how long it will take for us to get there, but that's where we're headed. And so I just say that as a reminder of why we've been talking about what we've been talking about this year. We've been talking about these things because we can expect to not be um, seen favorably any longer in our country as Christians. We can expect an increase in negativity toward Christians, an increase in persecution toward Christians. And the question is, how do we prepare for that? How do we live in the light of that? Well, the book of Acts is a book where Christians experience persecution. And we've already highlighted the fact that in Acts 2.42, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the truth. In a world filled with lies and motivated by lies... They held on to the truth, and it says in Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so we need to realize that we come together each week to hear what the truth is, because all week long we hear through the media and other means, we don't hear the truth about what is really taking place. Not that we don't hear any truth, but... The real truth is found in the Bible, in the scriptures. And at the heart of the apostles' teaching is the gospel, the good news. So even in a world that seems to be spinning out of control, we're to live our lives in light of good news, not bad news. We live our lives in light of the good news of the gospel, and that's why Paul could say, 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, just like Amal read. And so our hope is in the good news. We're not to be overwhelmed with the bad news, but we're to focus on the good news. And at the heart of the gospel, so the apostles' teaching is what we focus on, the heart of that is the gospel, and at the heart of the gospel is the love of God. Over and over again, we see that emphasized. And again, 1 John 4, uh, John says, through the incarnation, through the life and death and resurrection of Christ, through the revelation of God in Jesus, we've come to know and believe the love of God for us. That's at the heart of the gospel. And so the bottom line is, if I'm going to try and uh, answer the question, how are we to be prepared for what is to come? I would simply say, know and believe the love of the Father for you. Know and believe the love of God the Father for you. And that's why, as I said, John Owen could say, the love of the Father is the only rest for the soul. So in light of all that's going on, uh, whether it's personal issues or um, Issues in our country or issues globally, uh, our rest comes through Jesus in the love of the Father for us. And so what we're going to look at in Romans 8 is um, you would call the greatest or at least one of the greatest uh, passages on the love of God for his own children. Um, Romans itself is considered to be the clearest and fullest explanation of the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, read the book of Romans. And it, it's laid out uh, more clearly and more fully than any other place in the Bible. Romans 1 through 4 talks about the good news for the sinner. That you can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. That it's not through works. Again, as Amal highlighted and as was highlighted in various ways, we're not saved by our own efforts, but we're saved by the grace of God through faith in what Christ has done for us. And the first four chapters highlight that. Chapters 5 through 8 talk about the good news for the saints, the good news for us as believers, what is true of us in Jesus what God has done for us, what God is going to do for us, how our relationship with God has changed because God has saved us. And that's where Romans 8 falls. Beyond that, Romans 9 through 11, Paul is answering the question, well, if we can never be separated from the love of God, what happened to Israel? Didn't God set his love on Israel? And yet they didn't end up so well. And so Romans 9 through 11 answers the question, how are we to understand God's uh, love for us and never being separated from that love in light of what happened with the nation of Israel? Then Romans 12 through 16 basically tells us what the Christian life should look like in light of the fact that we are loved by God in Jesus. Uh, Calvin would say that if you understand the book of Romans... You have an entrance open to you to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. He would say it's like the key to the rest of the Bible. If you understand the book of Romans, then you can understand what the best rest of the Bible is talking about. 
Uh, J.I. Packer could say Romans is the high peak of the Bible and chapter 8 is the high peak of Romans, which means Romans chapter 8 is the Mount Everest of the Bible. You don't get any higher, greater, more wonderful truth than what you find in Romans 8. And in Romans 8, what we have emphasized is the love of God for his people. And so we want to read that this morning. And there are three things that I want us to note as we read through this. Number one, no condemnation. Uh, the, The chapter begins with a statement that those who are the children of God through faith in Jesus have no condemnation to dread, to anticipate. They've been completely delivered from condemnation. Secondly, there's no complacency. The idea that I'm not condemned doesn't mean I'm not concerned about sin anymore. There's no complacency with sin because I've been reconciled to God, my Father, who is holy, holy, holy. And I want to please him and I want to fellowship with him and I want to be like him. So there's no complacency with sin, even though there's no condemnation for sin either. And then finally, you could say that the latter part of the chapter talks about no fear. No condemnation, no complacency and no fear. If I am perfectly loved by God and nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, what do I have to be afraid of? Nothing. Nothing can separate me, so I have nothing to be afraid of. So let's read Romans 8 and uh, look at what it has to say, or at least begin looking at what it has to say. We're going to take three weeks on this uh, chapter to climb Mount Everest. Uh, verse 15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery. Now let me just back up a second. Verse 14 The last thing he says is he he makes reference to the sons of God. He's going to go from there talking about uh, God's love for his children. So in verse 15, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, search, excuse me, and he who searches the hearts 
knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Dan mentioned last, well, I guess two weeks ago, one of the things that I've done with my family and I've done occasionally um, uh, with you here is to talk in um, terms of some very simple sentences that kind of summarize, summarize in my... Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I've tried to summarize in very simple terms ways you can even teach your children the gospel. Uh, we've talked about the truth about God is God is the supreme good which means you'll never be satisfied apart from God. Only God can satisfy your soul and meet your needs. Man is an idol worshiper. That's the truth about man, which means we are prone to look everywhere for what we need and desire besides God. Thirdly, the truth about Jesus is that Jesus is the double cure. He came to do what we can't do for ourselves, to live the life we can never live, to die the death we deserve to die so that we could be saved both from the penalty and the power of sin. The truth about faith. Faith is trust in the promises. Faith is not just believing that something is real. Saving faith is trusting God for what he promises you. That's what faith is. It includes believing what God says is real, but it goes beyond that to actually trusting God himself. And then the truth about love, love is the obedience of faith, which means in order to love like God loves, I have to trust God. And what do I have to trust him for? I have to trust him for his love. That's the whole point. The love that he promises me in Jesus that's described here in Romans chapter 8, a love that I can never be separated from, a love that causes me to conquer even through suffering. I'm to trust him 
to love me perfectly, and that frees me to love people who don't love me perfectly. If we don't trust God to love us perfectly, we won't be free to love people who don't love us perfectly. And that is why it's so important, among a lot of other things, to see, to know, and believe the love of God for us. We've talked about the fact that the love of God is what gives us joy in God. If you love someone, you want to give them joy. You want them to have what's good. You desire their good and you pursue their good, which means you pursue their happiness, their joy. And that's what God does in loving his children. He pursues our joy. Jesus could say, I want you to have my joy. I don't want you to just have your joy. I want you to have my joy. And that's what it means to love someone. Uh, The love of God is at the heart of the good news. We've talked about that a lot already. It's uh, you can't talk about the truth of the gospel and not talk about the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love of God moves us to trust in Christ. When I share the gospel with someone, should the love of God come up? Yes, it should come up because that, as Spurgeon and others would say, is the great attraction. The great attraction of the gospel is the love of God to those who don't deserve it. And that's what God uses to draw us to himself. And then after he draws us to himself, it's the love of God to us as his children that moves us and frees us to love other people that don't love us like they should. But that brings us to the fifth uh, point, and it brings us to Romans 8, which is the love of God does not always look and feel like love. The love of God does not always look and feel like love. Just one verse, um, verse 36, is a quote from the Old Testament. It says, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's in the context of God loving us. The love of God does not always look and feel like love. To be a slaughtered sheep does not look and feel like God is loving you. And so that's why I want to highlight uh, three things from this chapter over the next three weeks. One is the love of the Father is a disguised love that will one day be revealed. Number two, the love of the Father is an all-things love that one day will be fulfilled. And finally, the love of the Father is an in-Christ love that is the reality of all who have repented and believed in Jesus. A disguised love, an all-things love, and an in-Christ love. The first thing is the love of the Father is a disguised love that one day will be revealed. Now, why do I say that? Look in verses 18 through 25. Um, In verses 18 and 19, Paul talks in terms of revelation. He talks about the fact that there are things that are hidden now that will be revealed. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
question is, what is what is all this talk about Revelation about? Well, there are other verses that talk in a similar ways. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So that means to the watching world, Jesus doesn't appear to be who we say he is. But one day, he's going to be revealed in such a way that they will not be able to deny who he is. In the same way, the watching world looks at Christians... And we don't appear to be what we say we are or what the Bible says we are. And yet one day, God is going to make it perfectly clear who his children are and what his children are. It will be revealed. As Peter said in uh, chapter 5 of 1 Peter, there's a glory that is to be revealed, the glory of Christ and the glory of the sons of God who have been saved through Christ. William Hendrickson could say, uh, Paul is indicating that not until the day of Christ's return will it become a matter of public knowledge how much God loves us and how he richly rewards us. Right now, it's what the Bible says, but it doesn't necessarily look that way. When I talk about the love of God being disguised, it's not disguised in the word of God. It's right there in front of us, right? The Bible doesn't hide the fact that we as believers in Jesus are the children of God and God loves us perfectly, fully, and forever. So in what way is the love of God disguised to his children? Well, it's disguised in terms of, oftentimes in terms of our experience. It's not disguised in the word, but it is often disguised in the world, in the world in which we live, in in our circumstances, in our experiences, like a sheep being slaughtered. Does that look like love? Does that feel like love? And yet, Romans 8 says that's the love of the father for his children. That's the love of the shepherd for his sheep. It's important that we realize that and see that. And in the midst of this world, it says in this passage, a couple times in verse 22 and 23, it talks about groaning, that we live in a world in which we still suffer. And we groan. In one sense, the creation groans and longs to see our glory, to see the sons of God revealed. And the creation longs to be set free from its own bondage because God has in a sense, cursed, as it says in Genesis chapter 3, he's cursed the world because of our sin, Adam and Eve's sin. And the creation, in a sense, is longing to be set free from the curse. And so there's a groaning that's taking place and has taken place from that very point in time. But we as children of God also groan under the weight of afflictions. But in what sense should we groan? We should groan in the sense that we know this is all part of giving birth. Isn't that what he says? He says in this passage that in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so the groaning of creation and the groaning of God's children is a real suffering but it's meant to be seen as the suffering of childbirth 
and therefore it's not meaningless. So many times we think our suffering has no meaning because we can't see the meaning of it. But just because we don't know what the meaning is or what the purpose is doesn't mean there isn't one. And Paul is arguing that whatever suffering we go through, it's like the suffering of giving birth. There's pain involved, but it's not a meaningless pain. It's a pain that results in a wonderful gift. And so it's important that we realize that. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, the, the, the importance of waiting. Just like a, a woman in labor, or first of all a pregnant woman, and then a woman in labor waiting for the birth of the baby. Verses 19, 23, and 25, he talks about the importance of waiting. The idea of waiting there is like the attitude of a soldier that's in the midst of battle who doesn't give up, doesn't get dismayed, continues fighting to the end. So it's not about sitting around with your feet propped up waiting. It's about continuing the fight, not giving up and not giving in. It's a waiting that's very, very active and engaged and trusting. And so the picture that we have is a picture of a, um, a Christian life that's very much about waiting for something that's coming. But there's a pain involved in that. But it's a pain that is sovereignly overseen by the Father who loves us. And therefore it has meaning and purpose and we can trust him for it. Well, let me give you three um, biblical illustrations of what I'm talking about because we're talking about the idea that God's love is a disguised love. Uh, First of all, think about Joseph. Joseph was the favored son of the father, the favored son of Jacob. But he was also, obviously, a child of the heavenly father. And yet the favored son gets sold into Egypt and loses his relationship with his family and his friends. And he gets falsely accused. He gets thrown into prison. And he even gets forgotten after he has this glimmer of hope that somebody might actually... Uh, tell Pharaoh that he, he was in there for nothing. And so Joseph was a man who was loved by God. And he was sold into slavery, thrown into prison, and had to wait until God gave birth to the goal of all that he went through. And that's why at the end of the book you find uh, Joseph telling his brothers As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, but God, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not not be afraid. Could Paul have had in mind this story when he said, God causes all things to work together for good. No matter what someone means for evil, As a child of God, God means it for good. And it's a matter of trusting him for that. Now, I've been reading uh, through the Bible this year, as maybe some of you have too, and I just completed the book of Job. The book of Job is one of my favorite books because it's so painful to read. Um, But it's interesting how honest Job is with what he's going through. 
And let me just highlight just a few things that Job says. Um, in Job 19, Job, obviously, you recall the story that it begins by God pointing out to Satan what a great guy Job is. And Satan says, oh, yeah, he's great because you bless him and you protect him. And uh, life is easy and good. And God says, okay, well, you can, you can touch everything he has, but don't touch him. Satan does that. His children are all killed. He loses all his wealth. And Satan goes back to God, and God says, see, you, you did that, and Job still worships and honors me. And Satan says, yeah, well, anybody would say, uh, as long as I'm doing good, I don't care what happens to me. And so God said, okay, you can touch his body, but don't take his life. And so he goes back and he afflicts Job with, with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And so he's a man who is totally broken. Uh, his wife says, curse God and die, which means he and his wife weren't, weren't in this thing together. Uh, his family doesn't want to be around him. His friends don't want to be around him. His, there are a few come, but they end up being poor comforters, lousy comforters, he says. So he's in it alone. And what he says is at one point in Job 19, Know then that God has wronged me. Just let that sink in. This is, this is supposed to be the best man on the planet. And he says, God has done me wrong. And has closed his net around me. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has put darkness on my paths. He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And he has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has also kindled his anger against me and, has, and considered me his, as his enemy. His troops come together and build up their way against me and camp around my tent. In Job 27, he says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul. In Job 30, he says, Now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride, and you dissolve me in a storm. This is a man of faith who is struggling greatly with what God is doing in his life. He says, God, you've wronged me. You are responding to me with your wrath and your anger. You've become my enemy. You've set your way against me. I cry out to you for help and you ignore me. You are cruel to me. And it's all lies. All that Job just expressed there that I read are all lies. But he believed them at that point. Why? Because that's the way it appeared. 
God was loving him, but it did not feel like love and it did not look like love. And so he was tempted and tested to doubt the love of God for him. His perception was, God, you're my enemy. You're wronging me. You're not loving me. The truth is he was loving him. And so if the best man on the planet could go there, don't be surprised when your heart goes there. And be honest with God when your heart goes there. Because that's what Job was. He was honest with God. And in the end, God corrected his wrong perception of reality. But that's that's the way it is. In a fallen world, our experiences often do not look like God is loving us. Think about what happened to the Lord Jesus himself. At several points in the gospel accounts, we find God speaking from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he's on the cross and you find this going on in Matthew 27. It says, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Jesus is hanging there on the cross, dying. They look up at him and say, and say, this man claimed to be a son of God. This man claimed that God delighted in him. It's obviously not true. Or he would not be on the cross. He would not be like a sheep led to slaughter. If it were true can't be true they felt like the fact that Jesus was crucified was confirmation that they were right in their assessment of him he was not God's son he was not loved by God he deserved to be on the cross and yet God never stopped loving his son yet he experienced what did not feel like love and did not look like love So let me apply this uh, for us this morning. Let me ask you these application questions. Just think about this. Does God care whether you feel loved? Did Job, uh, excuse me, did God care whether Job felt loved? Does God care whether it looks like he is loving you? Does God care whether other people think God loves you? Paul could say this in 1 Corinthians 4. He could say, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, 
but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. When the world says you're the scum of the earth, can you still say, but I'm loved by God? Or are you tempted to think, yeah, maybe I am. Maybe God doesn't love me. Or would I be in this situation? In John 16, Jesus said, They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. He says, as Christians, as followers of me, they're going to kill you, and they're going to believe that God is pleased with them for doing so. They're going to think that you deserve to die, and God wants you dead, and they're just serving God by putting you to death. There's a letter in the book of Revelation written to the church in Philadelphia where uh, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So I just bring up those verses to say it is very natural for the world to look at Jesus and say he was not loved by God. It's very natural for the world to look at Christians and say they are not loved by God. One day, Jesus is going to come and make everyone know that we are loved by God. That is what the revelation is going to be. But right now, it's disguised. It doesn't look that way to the world. So the question that I raise is, does God care whether or not you feel loved? Does God care whether it looks like he is loving you? And the answer is yes and no. He does want us to feel loved. And he will one day reveal just how loved we are. But our feeling loved and looking loved will never get in the way of him actually loving us. So we may not always feel loved and other people around us may not think we're being loved by God. But God says, trust me. With little kids, they get spankings. Would they say, thank you, Daddy, for loving me? Well, if they've been given revelation by God, they might. But most kids don't think that way. There's so many instances in Scripture and in life where we can see how God loves people in ways that don't feel like love or look like love. Um, There's a great song by Laura Story called Blessings. I think all of us are familiar with that song. And that song was written out of her experience with her husband, her husband, about two years into their marriage, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And they had big plans for their lives, big plans for what they wanted to do as husband and wife, and that changed everything. And he had an operation, and there were complications with the operation. It didn't do everything they hoped it would do, and as a result of that, he had significant memory issues after the surgery. Uh, He had significant vision issues after the surgery, 
he had disabilities. And Laura became his caretaker two years, well, after that process at some point in their marriage. And she said, There's a blessedness that comes through waiting on the Lord. There's an intimacy that comes in our walk with the Lord through walking through that valley. There's a reliance on his word that we only know when everything else fades away. Okay, that's key to what I'm trying to say. There's a reliance on his word, not on how you feel, not on what other people say, not on your experiences or your circumstances, a reliance on his word that he says, you are my child and I love you. You are my child and I delight in you. And nothing will ever change that. She wrote the song, Blessings, in which she talks about mercies in disguise. Now, in Sunday school, I think the children saw a picture of someone in disguise. Did you find out who that was? It was someone that they were told, right? Uh, Mrs. Miles told you who it was, but you couldn't tell that by just looking at the picture. Can you point that person out? Anybody who was in that in that uh, class? Can you point that person out? Riker, do you know? Huh? Yeah, sure. There's the picture right there. Anybody know who that is? Would the real disguised man stand up? All right. That's Josh. Okay. But Mrs. Miles simply said, this person all dressed up here is Josh. You have to take my word for it. You might not can imagine that being Josh. You, you have a real problem uh, with the idea that that could be Josh. But take my word for it. It's Josh. And so this is what Laura's story said, and I'll close with this. She said, we pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love. As if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? 
When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not this is not our home. It's not our home. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing, the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy and what if trials of this life the rain the storms the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise let's pray as we bow in prayer let me just ask some questions for you to think about to reflect on as we wrap up this time in the word do you trust that god loves you personally as a child of god as a believer in jesus Are you trusting his love for you today, this morning? Can you thank him for the things in your life right now that are his mercies in disguise? Can you think of the trials you're going through, the difficult things, the hard things, the painful things, the suffering? And do you see it as his mercies in disguise? Do you see it as his love, as a father, a tender perfectly loving Father in disguise. Father, we pray that you would help us to fight the good fight of faith because all of us are like Job at various times and in various ways. We all doubt your love to one degree or another. None of us are perfect and therefore we all sin and We never perfectly trust you, and therefore it means that we all fall short of loving you as we should and trusting your love as we should. We pray, Father, for a greater grace to trust your love for us and to believe there are trials and our sufferings, even the sin that we battle day in, day out, is all a part of your mercies in disguise. Father, we ask for grace to trust you, to trust your love, and to grow in loving like you love. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.